lot of the candidates that crossed Trump, they all crushed it. And the candidates that were endorsed by Trump, they did not fare as well. It's starting to look like being a Trump candidate is becoming more of a poison than anything else. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 10th. We're still sorting through the aftermath of the midterm elections, but two things are becoming clear. Democrats did way better than most people thought, and many Republicans are saying that Donald Trump is the reason a red tsunami never materialized. Today, Tara Palmieri, Tina Wynn, and Teddy Schleifer are here to break down what it all means for Joe Biden, for Republicans in Congress, and for 2024. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by SleepMe comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I hope you're enjoying election week. It's almost certain that by the time you hear this, they'll still be counting votes at West, where I'm broadcasting from. This is a very special edition of the powers that be because we are joined by not one, not two, but three guests, Tara Palmieri, Tina Wynn, and Teddy Schleifer, to break down what we know so far about the elections, why they were so surprising, who's pointing fingers at who, what worked, what didn't. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Peter. This is so exciting. Yeah, we got a little Brady Bunch box going on the Zoom here with everybody. Um, I want to start with you, Tara. President Biden came out yesterday, didn't quite take a victory lap, although he was definitely smiling throughout this press conference very much unlike previous presidents in their first midterm, Obama, Bush, who got shellacked, whatever. <laughs> Thumped. Yeah, it was not a thump in, as George W. Bush said. What is the White House feeling like in the aftermath of all this? Like, did they 
see this coming? Are they like, you should have listened to us. The pundits were wrong. What's the deal over there? I actually think they did a pretty effective job of moderating expectations. And I think that's why Biden could come out there and like pseudo claim victory by way of not being pummeled. You know, obviously they defied a lot of historical odds. If it was truly a rebuke on his presidency with a wipeout in the House, Senate, yeah, he probably wouldn't have done that presser. He probably would have left for Egypt by now. I think that at this point they think, hey, the results weren't so bad. They may keep the Senate. The House will probably be Republican, but it'll be by such a slim majority that it's going to be all dysfunction all the time from the Republicans, which may actually help Biden in 2024 if they just seem like overreach of investigatory power. And it didn't appear to be really a referendum on him. He was, even though 80% of the country, according to a lot of these exit polls, they're angry. They don't think that the other party is actually a better choice for dealing with that anger. And so that worked to Biden's advantage. Also, the Democrats had a lot of really strong candidates. Republicans had a lot of weak ones, thanks to Trump. One hot take I got from this was that, you know, if you think about it, a lot of the candidates that crossed Trump, that didn't want his endorsement, that strayed from him, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, Raffelsberger in Georgia, even DeSantis in Florida, who didn't want Trump endorsement, they all crushed it. And the candidates that were endorsed, picked, plucked by Trump, like Dr. Oz, Tim Mitchells in Wisconsin. They did not fare as well. And we'll see how the rest of the counting goes. But starting to look like being a Trump candidate is becoming more of a poison than anything else. By the way, in terms of like analyzing the results, until we get like validated voter surveys and more information on turnout, who actually voted, it's hard to extrapolate like just why the midterms went the way they did. But I think it is pretty clear that abortion was a huge motivator, especially among unmarried women who voted in favor of Democrats by like 38 points or something. And that the A-B test of a Trump candidate, Republican versus a semi-normie Republican who wasn't tight with Trump really proved itself out. And that's why you have Democratic governors in Pennsylvania and Michigan and a bunch of other states because Voters rejected election deniers. Tina, what's the like recrimination level <laughs> on the MAGA right at this moment? I was looking at a, a clip from the Charlie Kirk show earlier and like Benny Johnson was like losing his mind saying that Kevin McCarthy should have been more based and that would have rallied Republicans more. You know, that's that's the opposite argument than the one Tara's making, which is candidates should have been even more Trumpy than they were. So- there's this uh, online meme called Hopium versus Copium. And I think it's tied directly to like online hype or despair over a candidate. If you're going into an election and you're really, really jazzed up about a candidate, even if evidence is saying to the contrary, you know, slow your roll, you're hopped up on Hopium. If your candidates all lose and you can't contort what you want your outcome to be with reality, then you start coming up with all of these theories about why it is your positions, right? That's copium. The MAGA contingent was full on freaking copium last night. The interesting thing too, is that like there's a MAGA contingent who really has like gone behind Donald Trump all the way and will ride or die with him until the end of time. Uh, and then there's another faction within the MAGA movement, the national conservatives who are more like intellectual and policy oriented who have been like, hey, you know what? We actually should pay attention to Ron DeSantis and actually learn how to take 
our policy desires and maneuver them politically. Because right now, Trump has been all showmanship, no results. You've seen the outcome of the candidacy that endorsed. They've all been Trump wannabes who are crazy and don't have any experience in office at all. So either you stay on the Trump train forever or as like a small but growing contingent of MAGA Republicans are thinking, realize maybe there is a need for going beyond Trump because he clearly cannot enact the agenda we'd like. Or if he can't enact the agenda we'd like, he can't stop the Democrats from enacting their agenda, which is a more powerful argument. Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument even out of power, he helped Democrats do well at a midterm, which is also unprecedented. A president out of power helping the other party is pretty nuts. I do want to come back to you and ask about the sort of movement opinion about Ron DeSantis, but I want to get to Teddy real quick. Finally, been sitting here for hours. Sorry, man. (laughs) Ladies first. Teddy, you've covered so much of the influence of money on politics this cycle, in particular, Peter Thiel and Mitch McConnell and which which sort of like looking at the map, like where they're putting their chips. And Ohio and Arizona were definitely two places where Peter Thiel in particular was playing with J.D. Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in Arizona, two of his protégés slash allies. Did the fact that Republicans had to spend money in Ohio to shore up J.D. Vance, who won, but it, you know, Tim Ryan, his Democratic opponent, really ran a strong race kept it closer than it should have been. He ran ahead of the Democratic nominee for governor. There's a good argument to be made that he pulled two surprising Democrats across the finish line in two House races in Ohio just because he helped the ticket. Did that keep Republicans from spending money in other places where they might have needed it? In Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, whatever. Or Arizona, where J.D. Vance's friend was running his own campaign. Right. You know, I think Kerry Lake can still win governor in Arizona, but I'd rather be Mark Kelly right now than Blake Masters. How is that shaking out? So, Peter, um, when the Senate Leadership Fund announced they were pulling their money from Arizona, they did something which you're not supposed to do in politics, which is say the quiet part out loud. They called the $30 million expense in Ohio an unexpected expense. I know it struck people in, in Blake's world and in Peter Thiel's world as like gratuitous. Why are you going out of your way to say that, you know, spending money in a, in a swing state or a nominally a swing state like Ohio is unexpected? Like, why say that at all on the record? Even if you're saying it off the record. But it was true, of course, right? I mean, J.D. Vance won by seven points last night. That is due in part to $30 million spent by the Senate Leadership Fund. It's hard to know the counterfactuals here. But in a world where Peter Thiel, say, spends $30 million or even $20 million, or even I reported in a story that went up last night that, you know, Peter was considering a $20 million expense for J.D. and for Blake. They ultimately did not make sort of $10 million in Ohio. Like, how does that ricochet across the map? Are there then candidates in New Hampshire or in Pennsylvania or in Nevada who suddenly have more money from kind of the McConnell war chest if J.D. Vance does better or even if Blake Masters does better? Like, like I think all of these, you know, funding decisions are obviously related. If you are in charge of a big independent expenditure committee, you are not deciding whether or not J.D. Vance is going to win or Blake Masters is going to win. You're deciding who you think is more likely to win. Like to some extent, there's a Hunger Games element to this where every candidate whether you're Republican or Democrat, is sort of competing against one another to show that they are more competitive than their fellow nominee. So ultimately, you know, where this ended up is, is we'll see whether or not Blake Masters makes it competitive, but he's probably going to lose by a couple points. You know, you're right. He is 
losing to to Kerry Lake even, partially because there's a libertarian in Arizona who ran, who dropped out, but ran. J.D. Vance obviously won. So Peter is going to probably go one for two. That's pretty good. I mean, like, you know, both of these candidates were long shots during the primary. Peter worked his connections. He got them both the Trump endorsement. He spent $32 million, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. So from an ROI perspective, you know, you got one senator. I'm sure Blake Masters will think about running again in the future. Um, I would not be surprised. He's only 35, 40 years old. The donor world sort of did its job here, which is everyone played their angle. You know, McConnell did what was best for him. Peter did what was best for him. But certainly when Blake Masters loses by a couple points, there's a lot of recriminations, which I know Tara's been thinking a lot about, about kind of the blame game here. Clearly, there's a lot of question about whether or not, you know, if the Senate Leadership Fund had spent a couple more bucks in, in Arizona, would Masters have been competitive? I mean, I know that McConnell World saw Blake, uh, you know, eight weeks ago as not having a shot at all. Clearly, that was wrong. He had a shot. Yeah, he did. I mean, you and I on this podcast were dismissing the whole notion that Republicans were pulling out of Arizona two months ago, a month ago, because obviously he had a shot. I mean, Republicans were going to come home. Polls were going to get closer. And look, still might win, but he could have been pulled across the finish line by a few more bucks. I want to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about what the results mean for the next two years, but also what they mean for 2024. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, Tara, I know you've been doing some reporting on sort of the, the blame game up on Capitol Hill, K Street, Alexandria, wherever Republicans lie in D.C. Who's blaming who for the fact that Republicans did not have a historic victory on Tuesday? You know, the blame right now overwhelmingly is going towards Trump. No one really likes Rick Scott, but they're also like, he's just the NRSC chairman. And we all said all along that we didn't really like him. Some people are saying Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott should have played more in the primaries, picking better candidates. But, you know, others say, what were they going to do? Trump was going to meddle with it. But McConnell picking candidates doesn't work. But I think there was a theory that they could kind of run with Trump's wackadoo candidates and like the boat would rise together. Right. But it turns out all of these boats had holes in them and that this really was an election about individual candidates more than it was a national election 
And so they just didn't have strong candidates. Like Mitch McConnell was right. It was about candidate quality. Democrats have taken a lot of um, criticism for their decision to target Trumpy candidates and prop them up in the primaries, putting out ads saying like, this person's the Trumpiest. And it actually worked. It worked. (laughs) I know. It worked. Turns out messing with your opponent, picking your opponent works, right? But Republicans didn't do that. Instead, McCarthy spent a lot of time just picking out his candidates. You know, he picked candidates that were non-election deniers for the most part. He was spending a lot of time trying to pick people that he thought would be helpful to him as leader. And he spent his money there, but he wasn't spending any money picking crazies in the Democratic side to run against. So uh, perhaps that's a lesson to be learned from the Democrats. I don't really know. It's the dark arts of politics. I don't want to encourage it one way or another, but I think it worked for Democrats. So Tina, I want to go to you. You mentioned DeSantis earlier. He won last night in Florida, which is now pretty much a resounding red state. (laughs) He got up to give his victory speech. He said, Florida is where woke goes to die. What I found interesting is that his supporters in the crowd were chanting, two more years, two more years, basically saying like, we love you, man, but we want you to run for president. But I think you made a really good point earlier, which is that the culture war energy, the entertainment around Trump, like certainly has power. But in terms of getting stuff done while also being like an anti-woke crusader, DeSantis just feels like he's got more cards to play. He's like in the game. He's like, he just seems smarter (laughs) than Trump in a lot of ways, just in terms of governing and, and playing the inside game. I mean, last night was like an 11 out of 10 for DeSantis. Oh, yeah. 20 points. 20 freaking points. Yeah, crazy. And also, this is after Trump like deliberately started to shit on DeSantis. He had a rally in Florida with Rubio, didn't invite DeSantis. He called him Ron DeSanctimonious. He went on True Social on Wednesday and like was bragging about how he did in Florida versus DeSantis. This is DeSantis's time if he's going to run. I was talking to some uh, people in the DeSantis circles in Florida, and one of them told me that whoever announces first will automatically take the dominant position. Now, DeSantis, I believe he's going to be focused primarily on making sure that one, the state survives the next hurricane, and two, that he's able to cram the rest of his agenda through the special legislative session happening in Florida in the next couple of months. Trump may likely announced in November 15th or something after Tiffany Trump's wedding in Mar-a-Lago. But DeSantis goes up against Trump in this weird position where he is like, hello, I am Ron DeSantis. I am going to be the first person in six years to take on Donald Trump as party leader. And with that, he suddenly enters this new arena outside of his safe space of Florida. In Florida, like he could set the agenda. He was the governor. He had executive privilege. He could be like, I want to tackle critical race theory, and it would be so. I want to deal with regulations over plastic bags. That could be so. He built this perfect world for himself in Florida, and everyone loved him, and everyone loved the Florida he created. You had, like, what, 1.2 million people move to Florida in the middle of the pandemic, specifically because Florida was this, like, mandate-free wonderland. Once he leaves Florida... Not only will he have like the national media bearing down on him with all of the oppo that I'm sure the Trump campaign has gathered on DeSantis over the years, he's suddenly going to have to start talking about topics that he never had to as governor. As I've covered him for the past year, I've always been struck by how frequently his team was like, 
no, we're not going to talk about Ukraine. DeSantis just wants to focus on delivering Florida. We're not going to talk about China or various types of uh, international crises. He's going to have to take a position on that, which will make him even more unpopular. And he's just not a good communicator compared to Donald Trump. Like Trump is going to be good at defining him, attacking him regularly, just going on stage and having more charisma than him. The counter argument to all the DeSantis buzz is maybe Ron DeSantis is just Scott Walker, you know, like someone who gets a lot of inside buzz early on and like the invisible primary. But then once he gets the national stage, sort of it doesn't land. He's a little untested because he's been in the sort of conservative media slash Fox News bubble and steps out of it. He's a little untested in that sense. And like his debate against Charlie Chris, like he won the governorship. So it's not like he like lost that debate, but he was a little off balance at certain points because he wasn't being thrown a bunch of softball questions from like Peter Ducey. And Trump has a shamelessness about him that can be quite effective. I think that his team is going to be very deliberate in deciding whether he should run this cycle or not. I don't think DeSantis is a guy who's driven by ego and the high of everyone loving him. So Trump is going to announce the week of November 14th, right? And I I feel like DeSantis is going to have, you know, to make a decision relatively quickly because there's going to be extraordinary media pressure on both him and frankly, anyone who's talked about running to say something more definitive than what they've said over the last year or two, which is you could always say, I'm focused on the midterms. You know, DeSantis could always say, uh, I'm focused on uh, on my own reelection. Typically, as we all know, there's like there's like the six to nine month period, you know, after a, a midterm cycle when, you know, presidential candidates pretend they're not running and they say, you know, ridiculous things on Meet the Press about how they're going to spend time with their family over the holidays and all this jibber jabber. And I just feel like the fact that Trump is running right now is going to compress that half year to year part of kind of our, our presidential political culture into like a couple of weeks. Like, I don't understand how if you're a DeSantis, when Trump is announcing he's running, are you really going to go into like May, June, July of next year saying, I'm giving that serious thought? Like, I, I feel like Trump is going to speed up everyone else's decision making process. That's based on no reporting, just knowing how the media works. Yeah. The only person who knows whether he's going to run is Ron DeSantis himself and maybe Casey, his wife, who's like the only person who really understands what Ron DeSantis is thinking at any given moment. I would hazard to guess, just based on reporting I've seen around what Casey's been telling Ron, that they're going to do it soon. You're not going to see like a six to nine month period, but I would not be surprised if he did it in January. Yeah, Teddy, one thing I want to ask you too is like, I think we should start watching where the money starts to move a little bit. Like, like, so like Trump is, he never had to raise big dollars to run for president. He lived off of small donors. That was his whole ballgame. And, you know, a good example is Ken Griffin, the sort of hedge fund billionaire, came out the other day to Politico and said, he would support Ron DeSantis if he runs. It's time for a new generation. Basically channeling some of the arguments that we were making here in the first part of this podcast. And tons of people agree with him on that. Tons of people in the donor world. Like Ken Griffin is very much a mainstream Republican donor on that question. Totally. So you do think that like some big money might move to DeSantis? Because Trump doesn't need the big money. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, DeSantis raised a gazillion dollars uh, for his uh, re-election run. He didn't even spend all of it. And, you know, he has 
reportedly interested in, in kind of just transferring money from his gubernatorial campaign to a presidential super PAC, which is of questionable legality, but probably can get away with it. DeSantis later this month is going to the Republican Jewish Coalition uh, annual confab. Um, that's, you know, a group that, you know, loved Trump, um, but, you know, is stocked with board that is basically every powerful Republican Jewish donor out there. Look, I mean, DeSantis, I think, will be the money candidate without a doubt. He'll have no trouble uh, raising enough cash, you know, especially in, in the super PAC era when a Ken Griffin could give you 50 million bucks, right? And then suddenly you're, you're, you're in the game. Peter, the, the, the bear case there is obviously the anti-Trump forces were very well funded in 2016, but a fair read on this is DeSantis will not lack for money. I don't know if, you know, Ken Griffin would choose DeSantis, you know, if he was uh, emperor for a day and could choose his president. Um, and the analogy doesn't make any sense, but but bear with me. Um, I don't think he would choose Ron DeSantis, or maybe he wouldn't. I don't actually know. But ultimately, DeSantis is the most backable, credible candidate for donors across the country. And he could raise 200, 300 million bucks, uh, I think, for a, a presidential primary into a super PAC, which would be pretty crazy. But there's a lot of Republican donors who obviously do not like Trump and have not really had an opportunity to break with him financially over the last eight years. This is their first credible chance to do so. Yeah. There have been many opportunities going back to 2015 for Republicans to finally speak up and finally throw Trump overboard. And that has been the case. You might not see a lot of Republicans brave enough to do that now, but I do think that DeSantis is the first person to come along that gives Republicans, both uh, sort of normie mainstreamers and MAGA Republicans, permission to say, I'm going to go with this guy without facing an enormous amount of backlash. You think that's right, Tina? I think so, especially after this midterm cycle. Let's be honest, the candidates that Donald Trump backed and the agenda that Trump made his endorsement contingent upon failed pretty miserably. DeSantis barely said anything about whether the 2020 election was stolen or not. He kind of said one thing about abortion. We've got a 15-week ban in Florida. That's it. Said nothing else afterwards. He steered clear of all of these big national issues that have doomed every other candidate. And I think as long as he maintains the discipline to be like, this is me, this is my record, I'm going to ignore Donald Trump forever and always, and somehow expands the world in which Donald Trump does not exist to the rest of the country and just gives the country a vision of... I guess, as one of my sources put it, making America Florida and not like whatever Trump was trying to do, it could be successful. That is unless he allows himself to be completely derailed by Trump. And that's just a matter of discipline and people around him at that point. All right, you guys, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much more to talk about. And the midterms aren't even over yet. So we'll probably have you back on as they still count the votes, especially out here in California, where apparently we won't even know the uh, winner of the mayor's race until next week. Not too early, though, to uh, to write your own narrative. <laughs> <laughs> the opportunity is open to say whatever you want for a couple weeks. Yeah, the Take Meisters. I mean, this is your Super Bowl. I mean, get in there. All right, guys. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.